Hi, I'm Helen Avery with the Green Finance Institute, and you're listening to Financing Nature from GFI Hive. In this episode, I'm joined by Richard Speak, Managing Director at Finance for Sustainability and co-founder of Finance Earth, to talk about what we can learn from the evolution of social impact investment to help us more swiftly develop nature-based finance for the UK. You know, we've got to have more ambition in this space. When we started Finance Earth in 2016, we were enviously looking across the pond at the US conservation investment market. And that was worth about $7 billion in total. And now it's more than $20 billion a year in revenue. So more than $50 billion invested in activities that restore and protect nature and our natural environment. And it supports more than 220,000 jobs across the US. So that's bigger than coal, steel and mining combined over that. And if you can do it, then surely we can. Hello, and thank you for joining me this fine spring day. I'm really excited about our guest today, Richard Speak. I know I always say that, but I really think today's conversation is one that we we all want to have, and that is, what can we learn from the success of the social impact investment market or industry in the UK? and apply to the development of nature-based investment. And Rich, who has worked in both areas for well over a decade, is going to share those learnings with us today. So one to have a pen handy, I think. As knowing Rich, there are going to be a lot of really great ideas that we can collectively move on. And so with that hopefully very enticing introduction, let's invite Rich on. Welcome, Rich. It's so nice to see you, as always, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm really well, Helen. Thank you. It's uh, It's been a, a frantic start to the year with lo- lots of things going on, but I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it really does feel like there's been so much on this year already, and for you in particular, I know. <laughs> so thanks you so much for joining us and taking the time. Um, Rich, I know you as co-founder and managing director of Finance Earth with Jamie Mansfield, um, which is, for those that don't know and are listening, an advisory business and nature-based environmental impact investment manager. But actually, Finance Earth is actually just a piece of what you do more broadly. Um, And a lot of what you do lies within social impact investment. And indeed, you have this really deep background in social impact investment. So this is a very long intro, probably the longest we've ever done. Um, But I wanted to explain to our audience why I know you're the perfect person to edify us on what the emerging nature investment market can learn from the evolution of the social impact investment space. Um, But before we come on to that part, I know I would just love to hear about your own journey that's taken you from M&A through social investment into nature-based finance. So could you tell us about your involvement in the growth of social impact investment and beyond? How did it all start? Yeah, so a, a bit of a random walk, to be honest. Um, so originally, I trained in law, um, and I had my own company at university. And, and you know, my way of running the finances was to take a box of invoices and dump it on the accountants and say, you deal with it. <laughs> so I decided I needed to be better at that. And I, I wanted to kind of stay in business. So I, I trained as an accountant. And then post-qualifying, I spent you know, the best part of 10 years in mergers and acquisitions, buying and selling hotels and, and cinema chains in Germany to, to funding European solar parks and buying Polish cable companies and, and raising lots and lots of money for lots and lots of international businesses. But then in 2012, my mum was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So I went home to Blackburn in the Northwest where my northern dulcet tones come from 
Um, and whilst there, set up a charity and two social enterprises, a little bit by accident, um, but but all doing sort of grassroots sport, which is really important in, in kind of Blackburn in the northwest of England. But in doing that, I stumbled over this thing called social investment that I'd, I'd never really heard of before, you know, finding a way to kind of use the skill set to both create financial return and positive social return sounded a little bit too good to be true. So so when I came back to London, instead of sort of carrying on in mergers and acquisitions or private equity, I joined social finance. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the, the sort of largest UK intermediary in, in social impact investment. They pioneered you know, much of the space, including the social impact bond model. Um, and in the time I was there, we mobilized about 100 million for, for social enterprises, charities and, and social impact bonds. At that time, the, the social impact investment market was worth about a billion. So you know, social finance was heavily involved in lots of lots of the early deals and the growth of the sector that you know, I think some people are putting at sort of eight to 10 billion you know, yeah. this year and, and probably growing even more. I was there for a while, but in 2016, I, I sort of left a um, couple of reasons, really. One, one of my social enterprises, Sporting Assets, was growing and I needed to be more hands-on. But Secondly, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a conservationist at heart. All of my philanthropy goes to charismatic megafauna, so big <laughs> sharks and things like that. And I wanted to do more in the green space. And, and that's not really been on the agenda in the UK for, for the social investment players like social finance or big society capital. So from there, you know, we kind of roll forward and I now run a number of social enterprises across sport, environment, arts and heritage under a banner called Finance for Sustainability. And that, that group basically provides consultancy, corporate finance and fund management for the bits of the impact sector that got a little bit left behind in the initial gold rush. Gosh, no wonder you're so busy. Um, there's a lot going on under the one umbrella of Finance for Sustainability. Um, and no doubt we'll have Jamie on at some point in the future and we'll focus just on Finance Earth and its work and projects. But could you share, now that you're with us, a little bit about that work of Finance Earth and how that came about? So Finance Earth is, is the environmental strand, effectively, of, of the Finance for Sustainability group. So going back to first principles, in order to stop global species decline and to stop mass extinction, we, we need to preserve what habitat we've got left and restore as much as we possibly can. And the cost of doing that is about a trillion dollars a year. And we currently only spend you know, somewhere in the region of $125 billion to $150 billion a year. So, so there's a long way to go to meet that funding gap. And, and it's not going to be met by philanthropy or public sector spending. So, so we've, we've always seen across, across all of the group, actually, because they, they all focus a little bit on the same thing. But this idea of using repayable finance as a tool in the toolkit um, is really important. And private sector investment hasn't been a t- you know, a tool in the toolkit for nature so far, really. So we set Finance Earth up as a social enterprise with a mission to contribute to solving that funding gap for nature. Um, And we do that by helping partners develop, deliver and fund projects that can crowd in private finance as part of their funding model. You know, the theory being in doing that, you know, we free up that sort of philanthropic or public sector funding to go and do the deeply impactful and transformational work that, that really will never be financeable or investable. So Finance Earth you know, lends its skill set to people that can do a whole load better with it than we could on our own. But we ultimately provide you know, consultancy and corporate finance advice, fund and, and investment product design, and, and fund and asset management across what we call the built environment and natural environment. But I guess in, in kind of, sort of layman's terms, you know, we, we work with partners such as the environmental NGOs, corporates, local government, central government, getting our hands dirty, working out how these nature and climate projects can be put together on the ground. 
how can they deliver revenues or cost savings or other cash flows to try and support the use of repayable finance in the funding mix, and then try and figure out how to scale and replicate that. You know, and it just sounds like exactly what we need right now. And and also, sounds like the dream. Um, you, you tell me, you're working in it. Is it the dream? It's definitely work with purpose. Um, it's very difficult to say no because everything is is impactful and you want to kind of try and do as much as you possibly can. And we now work with the likes of the National Trust and RSPB and WWF and, and Woodland Trust, as well as corporates and local authorities on these sorts of projects. And, and you know, we've probably worked more closely as well than we ever thought we would with central government and, and DEFRA and the DEFRA family, as well as some of the devolved nations. I'm trying to work out what market infrastructure is needed to develop this idea of an environmental impact investment market in the UK. And we've also ended up exporting a load of that expertise. So we're now working across a number of international land and seascapes doing exactly the same thing. So from our sort of humble humble origins in 2016, we've, we've sort of grown into a bit of an international business, which has been really exciting, but also quite terrifying. <laughs> well, I, I bet, I bet. Um, now, you know, you've been at the vanguard of helping nature investment develop in the UK. And it's interesting to hear you talk about exporting those learnings internationally. I know I never expected myself to, to say this coming from years spent in the US, but it actually feels like there is a lot of learning happening here in the UK that could be really useful internationally. Um, and we'll come on to some of that, I'm sure, at some point. But but I wanted to talk primarily today about the learnings that can be derived from the journey of the social impact investment sector. I think you said it was about a billion in size in the UK where you got involved in 2012. Now it's more like 8 to 10 billion. Um, and we've seen the UK pioneer social impact bonds. We've got a social impact wholesale bank in big society capital. We've got multiple multi-million funds for social impact investment, uh, for capacity building. And before we can start making some comparisons between that market evolution and nature-based finance. Could you give us a bit of a history lesson on how the social impact investment market has come to sort of flourish in the UK? What have been the key building blocks? Yeah, I can certainly try. Um, I'd say the market's probably been around a lot longer than I have, but um, to my my take, you know, to start with, I think it has been a real UK success story, but, but I think we do have to put it into context. So, so those billions that we talk about, the UK impact investment market, it's about the same size as the bonuses that were paid to the top five investment banks in 2021. Uh, to get to that kind of number, it took a, a long time and a lot of hard work by a lot of very smart people. Um, so you know, huge amounts of effort that have gone in to get us to where, where we are. Um, and it's worth saying you know, right at the outset that I think the, the impact investing or the idea of investing money for both a financial and social or environmental return it's been around since the Victorian times and started to really gain traction in the 60s and 70s, especially in the US, but remained quite niche. And then I think you know it really started to gather momentum when Sir Ronald Cohen, who, if you don't know, was one of the pioneers of the private equity market and has fairly good experience of creating a market, <laughs> took up a, a really visible role as a champion um, for, for social impact investing and, and created... You know, social finance and also created bridges investment management as, as kind of examples of a fund manager and an advisory business for the sector. And then started pushing really hard for an investment bank to be created because that's what he believed was needed. Now, that term became slightly dirty in the early 2010s. <laughs> so 2012, early 2013, you know, the UK again, you know, first in the world launched Big Society Capital, which was this wholesale social investment institution to, to kind of grow the market with 600 million of initial investment. 
you know, in my time, you know, we've seen a huge number of interventions that have kind of gone alongside that from, from technical assistance funds like the Investment Contract Readiness Fund and Big Potential being launched, policy initiatives, and then, you know, government reforming, you know, fiduciary duties of trustees, fiduciary duties of institutional investors to make it easier to, to invest in social impact investing. You know, all of those have come through and, and really helped drive that market forward. And I guess at the same time as that, we saw at, at, at the kind of pipeline end, this concept of social enterprise and, and business for good becoming more mainstream. And so over the last 20 years, we've had a bit of a proliferation of social purpose businesses. And I think that, you know, bottom up approach has really sort of driven the market forward as well. And I think the other thing that's that's been a real success is as part of that period, you know, UK established a social impact task force and a national advisory board during its presidency of the G8. And, and that really helped take the idea global. You know, that social impact task force got expanded to become the global impact investment steering group of 13 member states in the EU. And that market now, according to the global impact investing network, is worth about 700 billion and growing rapidly. So you know, a huge success story. And, you know, much congratulations can go to all of the people involved in that, because, you know, when we talk about new markets in a period actually that's been really turbulent, there's not a lot that you can kind of hold a candle to the social impact investing market. Now, listening to you there, it's so exciting. And as you point out, um, social impact investment routes are far longer than a decade ago but the strides made since the financial crisis um, are huge and it's really exciting to think that may happen for nature so on that if we could take three or four lessons from that evolution you just shared you mentioned task force you mentioned big society capital um, what ones would you highlight that we could apply to the development of nature markets in the UK so I, I think as Nestor's CEO says in an article today Scaling solutions is bloody difficult. When I was at Social Finance, we did a piece of work to look at how much investment readiness and capacity building had been invested over the period of, of circa three years. And it was more than 100 million. Yeah. So, you know, 100 million going in at the bottom, as well as that 600 million going in at the top from big society capital. And I think that combination of funding into developing the pipeline, as well as kind of seeding a new market at the top and of creating these new breed of impact fund managers. And then, you know, layering over the enabling conditions required around the tax reliefs and the governance reforms, you know, everything had a role to play. Yeah. And so if we want to see, you know, investment in nature market moving forward at pace, we need to see a similar range of interventions. But there are really many, many, many more pieces of the jigsaw still to be designed, developed and built. So on this capacity building investment readiness that you mentioned of like 100 million, I think you said that went into social impact investment. And um, we obviously have some capacity building efforts happening here in the UK on the nature side, like the Natural Environment Investment Readiness Fund, the Big Nature Impact Fund. Um, but can we expect government to pay for it all? Because um, it really feels like we're missing this like low return, high impact investor segment, sometimes um, provided by philanthropy elsewhere. Um, what are your thoughts on how we can basically fill this gap on capacity building for nature that we need in the UK? So I, I think that's one of the, the hardest nuts to crack, to be honest. And, I, and honestly, I think that it's something even social investment hasn't yet really managed to do at scale in the UK. And I think, you know, I'd point to the US as having a more interesting model to learn from, I think. In the UK, we're, we're still quite attached to our view of we earn something over here and then we give it away over here. People give away to things that they're passionate about. 
and, and actually, you know, for, for high net worths and for family offices, it, it's really hard for them to find our sorts of deals. You know, we're not that visible to the to the broader market. And so there's a sort of bit of information dysphoria around, you know, how do we access that kind of capital? But we've also got the sort of trusts and foundations. And as you've said, you know, we've got a few trusts and foundations in our sector that are a little bit more forward thinking. But a lot of them were created from historic wealth linked to land. You know, they've never really been linked to business. Right. And so when you're asking them to do something that means that they have to think about a financial and an impact return, they're not experienced or equipped to make an investment decision because that's not their day job, right? It's like if you ask me to go and give loads of grants away, I'd probably be really rubbish at it because I've never done that. I've only ever done investment. Right. Um, and then there hasn't been a, that proliferation of advisors trying to help philanthropists move into this space either. So accessing those sorts of people through their sort of wealth advisor shields effectively is really hard. So I do think that, you know, the UK sector has quite a long way to go. And when we put that in comparison to the US, where a lot of the foundations have been created in, in the last you know, hundred years or less off the back of entrepreneurs creating businesses, this idea of investing in enterprise models to deliver both social and environmental goods, it's, it's not alien to them. And so venture philanthropy really has been a key catalyst. Rockefeller will, will probably proudly tell you that they coined the term impact investing in 2007 because they've been doing it for years and didn't have a concise way of how to explain it. Right. So I think that's a key area you know, for the UK that we do need to get right, because you're absolutely right. There's not enough public sector funding to do this. We started to use blended finance in the UK. You know, blended finance is a big international tool. But, you know, I think it's not been radical enough in, in how it's been sort of brought in and the types of things that it's being used for in terms of catalyzing those new and innovative areas of the market. Just to be clear, when you say not radical enough, do you mean in terms of what the public sector funding is doing within the structure? Could you just expand on that? So a lot of the blended finance structures that we see in the market at the moment are, are first loss structures for, for sort of lending to social enterprises and charities. And that and that was a call from the sector that you know the, the sector itself wanted to see more of that. But at the same time, there's a need to then go beyond the existing players, the existing structures. And, and try and innovate and develop newer models of how we get patient capital to the front line, the right capital for the right activity. And, and venture philanthropy and venture capital is a, is a big missing piece of the puzzle that, you know, as much of the capacity building technical assistance money that's there for the social investment market still doesn't exist, you know, for the environmental market because those social investment structures are created for that. They're created for social, not for environmental. So moving on to big society capital, I just wondered, you know, that was obviously funded by 600 million from assets in dormant accounts and bank capital to invest in social impact. Should we, could we have something similar for nature? So I think, you know, there's mixed views on the success or otherwise of, of BSC and, and that's not a debate I think we want to get into. But what I think everybody does agree on is that a capital injection was required to get investment moving in the social investment space and 600 million was a number that made people stand up and take notice. Um, and as I said before, you know what that's catalyzed is a, is a number of you know, innovative and, and aligned fund managers for impact investment that go way beyond ESG or SRI investing. You know they're seeking deep and broad impact from their investments. You know we're one of them, and I think the nature market has a lot to, to learn from that. It has the potential to be worth tens of billions 
very quickly with initiatives like biodiversity net gain, environmental land management schemes, and the acceleration of the carbon markets. But with that rapid growth, there's a material risk that early movers into the space cream off super profits. And that, you know, a lot of that funding disappears out of the system. Right. You know, I remember when we launched our first fund in renewable energy and we analyzed the market and looked at where all the government subsidies were going. And, and lo and behold, most of it was going offshore into Chinese pension funds and German family offices. Not like in our model, which is now going back into those well now fuel stressed communities around those assets. And I think you know a major underappreciated success story of BSC has been this sort of generation of a group of fund managers that are trying to deliver fair financial returns for the risk being taken by the investors, but then trying to put the rest back into the system. And where do you think we might get the seed funding for something similar? There's clearly a lot of ways to seed it. Um, I think unclaimed assets is a really low risk place to go for government. But I also think we shouldn't lose sight of the polluter pays principles. You know, the innovation of the plastic bags tax, I think, you know, could have been centralised. It could have been rooted into investment in this area. And there are quite a lot of other single-use plastics or carbon-heavy industries or air and water-polluting activities that, that could be levied. Oh, these are great ideas. I'm sure those listening are taking notes, and I know I am. Um, and then continuing through these building blocks, you mentioned tax relief. Um, I believe that the Wire River deal has been granted social investment tax relief status. Do you think that will help um, other environmental projects attract investors if they're able to apply that same SITR um, status? Or do we really need specific tax relief for environmental projects? Like I say, we're really missing venture funding and those tax reliefs, not just SITR, but venture capital trusts and enterprise and seed enterprise investment provide that kind of really important tool to be able to deploy capital into higher risk activities or, or novel activities. But unfortunately, they've not been designed for nature-based products on the whole. So a lot of them specifically exclude land-based activity. So woodland creation or the creation of a biodiverse community-owned farm or the creation of a habitat bank. You know, these things wouldn't qualify for those reliefs under the way that they're currently structured. I think there are some simple tweaks that could be done within the legislative framework that you know could actually open the proverbial floodgates for retail investment in, in nature-based projects. And we saw this with... You know, the interest in community energy when community energy first came into the market with renewables. But I think, you know, getting that part of the, the enabling environment right is critical. So summarising our wish list, we've got tax relief, big society capital for nature, venture philanthropy needed for capacity building and blended finance. I wonder if we can now talk about some of the financial tools within social finance that we could build upon uh, on the nature side. So social impact bonds, obviously very popular. And now we're seeing environmental impact bonds. Um, also, you're involved in a couple of those projects yourself through Finance Earth. Is this an opportunity for us to get finance into nature using those tools? Look, I love the idea and the underlying thesis of social or environmental impact bonds. It, it, it makes total sense to me to organise a risk transfer mechanism away from constrained public sector or risk-averse NGO delivery partners and have the private sector take take the risk. And if it works, there's a return to pay for the risk that they're taking, but that comes from that sort of payment for success or, or outcomes model. And in the UK, you know, again, we've, we've pioneered the space and there's been 70 plus of these bonds created, but they've been a bit subscale and, and you know, the market it kind of bobbles around about 100, 120 million, I think. US, by comparison, they've done about 30, and it's about $300 million already. 
Wow. Um, so much, much bigger scale. Um, and I think that's, that's key in making some of these work from a cost perspective. One of the key things for me in, in then translating that into, you know, the social success to, the, to nature is trying to find the outcomes payers because a social impact bond model only works if you can find an outcomes payer. So, you know, without that, the whole, the whole system falls down. And in the social sector, government were a great pioneer of this. So everybody from the Ministry of Justice to the Department for Education and DWP, you know, latched onto the idea of paying for success and were willing to kind of innovate and trial. We've not seen that in the environment or the climate sector. So DEFRA and Bayes, you know, haven't kind of moved forward on that model. And I think, you know, again, the US experience shows that you can use it in everything from wildfire prevention to sustainable urban drainage and solving sewer um, storm runoff. You know, many, many of these sort of issues and working out how you can apply this model. But without that outcomes payer, you, you can never develop them more than the theory. Right. And and for me, you know, there's, there's a couple of natural outcomes payers, so water companies, but also DEFRA and DEFRA family who, you know, are clearly exploring this area with environmental and management schemes. Mm. But let's just for a moment imagine how transformation it would be if the $5.2 billion government intends to spend on flood alleviation was mobilised as an outcomes payment or the $600 million plus that flood is currently just sat on mainly in cash can be mobilised as an adaptation via payments for success in de-risking insurers in high flood risk zones. Do you think there are different challenges that the nature side faces that the social investment space didn't? I actually don't like the disconnection, if I'm honest. Without nature and climate, you know, you don't get very far on the social. And and I think all nature and climate projects in some way, shape or form affect communities. So you you end up having to take a holistic view. And and this disconnection has caused friction because of that. And, And, you know, at Finance Earth, we've really tried to take a triple bottom line approach as, as we've seen too many projects that end up with perverse consequences, whether they're intended or unintended. So we can all point at the forest protection project that displaces local communities or investment in agriculture aimed at improving social standards that in developing countries decimates habitats and local biodiversity or closer to home, you know, reintroducing extinct species that causes conflict with landowners and agriculture and livestock. And so, you know, disconnecting it, I think, is one of the main challenges that actually nature investment faces. You know, we have this infrastructure in social, and we can't use it. You know, we're now trying to play catch up without any of that market infrastructure. And um, we don't have a Sir Ronald Cohen. We, we don't have a big society capital. We don't have the tax release. We don't have the reform. We don't have the champion in the top tier of government like Cabinet Office was under both Gordon Brown and David Cameron for social impact investment. It's hard to kind of then talk about the nature projects when we're talking about 50 to 100 year life cycles in a market that remains really quite short term profit motivated and a political environment that's only thinking five years ahead. So, you know, all of the planning for all of that probably needs to be removed from the the drivers of time. Otherwise, we're just going to end up with low quality, low cost nature being delivered remote from the people and places that really need it. Yeah, listening to you there, actually, you reminded me of the recent principles for responsible investment in natural capital that was released by Scottish government that, that attempts to marry those two sides together. And um, and your point is well taken that it's not necessarily helpful to consider nature and society as separate. And while we have you, I would love to understand your view on where we are in this journey. So if you think about where the social impact investment markets come from since, say, 2012 and I'm just picking that because that's when you got involved in the sector and when you said it was you know about a billion and now it's now it's like eight billion where are we along that journey do you think in nature I guess I'm trying to sort of just say like 
how long have we got until we're attracting those kinds of figures, do you think? It's always a how long's a piece of string question. So, you know, my coming into social investment in 2012 didn't really have anything to do with <laughs> going a billion to eight billion. I'm sure of that. Um, but the, you know, for me, it, it's kind of the, we're on a rising tide. And, and I love the fact that I'm seeing things like Rishi Sunak writing to the UK National Infrastructure Bank to outline his expectations of what he expects them to do around you know, nature-based solutions and private investment and, and targeting at least 500 million by 2027 and, and more than a billion by 2030. And as I said to, to a minister the other day, I think that's maybe 20x light on where we need to be. And, and I think you know, by your own figures at, at GFI, you know, we need, we're 56 billion in the next 10 years. So, so I'd like to see us all being a bit more ambitious. I actually think that those sorts of numbers are, are actually really achievable. And, you know, when we look back at things like the Green Investment Bank, you know, that was a government owned, you know, PLC seeded with 3 billion and it aimed to crowd in 15 billion. So, you know, not not hugely significant leverage. And that was for the renewable energy and energy efficiency projects in, in 2012. So if we take that model, then we need six times that level of investment to close the UK you know, gap for nature. And, and for me, I think this is a, a real opportunity again for the UK to be at the forefront of a market that could develop globally. And I think we've got every element for success in the UK. We've got the talent, we've got the finance, we've got a really strong and resilient ENGO sector, especially post-COVID. We've got an innovative private sector, and we've got one of the largest collections of socially and environmentally minded businesses in the world. But we do need to move nature up up the agenda. You know, it's not point nine on the 10 point plan for a green industrial revolution. Yeah, it's true. It's number nine on the plan, even below carbon capture. To your point that the will and the skill is here, uh, I guess my question is, how do we come together and move it up the agenda, therefore? It still feels like we're not all fully on board, um, not in the way that we were for social impact. Yeah, we need to continue the interventions like the Natural Environment Investment Readiness Fund. You know, It, it needs to be long-term, true capacity-building money, not short-term interventions that lots of advisors make lots of money off. I'm one of those advisors, you know, I'd rather be spending much longer really building the capacity in, in the clients to, to make sure that they can then go on and deliver further and more projects and give them the tools and, and equip them to do that and create that kind of market. So we've got to catalyze that pipeline and you know, we, we kind of need that to be robust and we need it to be recurring. I think this the idea of injecting some kind of substantial capital at the top is really important. And, and being if, you know, 30 million is a great first step, but you know, it's 20x less <laughs> short of what social got. You know, why, why is it so, you know, the poor cousin? I don't want us to be the poor cousin to social impact investment. And I think that aligning nature and climate is really important. We talked a lot about nature today, but we've got a green finance team in DEFRA doing, you know, nature investment. We've got a green finance team in Bayes doing climate investment. And, you know, the two are intrinsically linked. And, you know, social investment, as I said, had this kind of cut across departments because it was elevated to the cabinet office. And I'd love to see kind of the green finance teams come together and be elevated. I guess the reform of, of tax reliefs, you know, we've talked about that, but you know, let's make inheritance tax relief and business property relief only available for nature positive activities. That would be transformational in how people use the land, how people try and deliver the benefits and the public goods out of those lands. And, and they're huge tax reliefs. And I said before about, I think, ambition. You know, we've got to have more ambition in this space. When 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 we started Finance Earth in 2016, we were enviously looking across the pond at the US conservation investment market, um, now termed a restorative market, actually. And, and that was worth about seven billion in total. 
And now it's more than $20 billion a year in revenue. So more than 50 billion invested in activities that restore and protect nature and our natural environment. And it, it supports more than 220,000 jobs across the US. So that's bigger than coal, steel and mining combined over that. And if wow. they can do it in a period with the president that they had over the last sort of five years, then surely we can. Well, when you frame it like that, it just feels sensible and achievable. Um, it just feels like maybe we need more boots on the ground, perhaps, to know that everyone we talk to um, is sort of maxed at max capacity. <laughs> um, and I'm sure many people listening to to this discussion to you, Rich, will be feeling really inspired right now. And and just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on to share today. There's just so much in this discussion. Um, but before we let you go, uh, you have such deep expertise in the social impact sector. Is there anything you would recommend that we in the nature finance community can go away and read? I think as with nature finance, there's a new report every day. So there's probably way too much to point to a single item. But I think in terms of lessons learned, I think the Adewole Commission's report on social investment was a really good kind of summary of where where the market's got to and where it needs to kind of think about moving forward. I think I'll put a plug in for my old employer because social finances website, you know, it has a huge repository on on kind of the tools and the work that they've done around social impact bonds and other interventions. And I think there's some really good information on that. And then more globally, the Global Impact Investing Network's online library is ridiculously good. So if you're going to start somewhere, start there. Brilliant. Thank you, Rich. I will try and provide links to those reports on our GFI Hive podcast page. Not so easy to provide links in Spotify and Apple, so you'll have to go there if you want them. Um, And thank you so much again, Rich, for your time today. Really looking forward to continuing to carry on the conversation um, and also seeing if we can help move forward some of these learnings and ideas from today. Yeah, you're more than welcome. What a rich conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I know there's a couple of things from today's discussion that I feel we at the Institute could move forward for sure. Um, But that is all from us today at Financing Nature. Please don't forget to head over to GFI Hive to sign up for the monthly newsletter. Um, If you haven't already, that holds all the recent case studies and podcasts that we've posted and news from the industry. You can find that on www.greenfinanceinstitute.co.uk forward slash GFI Hive. Next week, I'm joined by Gwyn Williams, Head of Conservation Investment at the RSPB, to hear about their journey into uh, financing nature. And many more guests coming our way in April, including Anne-Laurence Rouchet, Deputy CEO, um, Head of Private Equity and Natural Capital Markets at Rover. We have Katie Critchlow, CEO at Nature Metrics, and Willie Watt, Chair of the Scottish National Investment Bank. Until then, however, thank you so much for your continued support. And thank you to our Financing Nature funders, the Esme Fairbend Foundation, and to our podcast editor, Robin Lieburn of Fairly Media. See you next week. <laughs>